This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. other side of midnight well i figured it out inevitably uh, there is going to be consternation over keeping the government open remember that was one of the things that did kevin mccarthy uh, in as speaker so uh, it's only a matter of time before the current speaker of the house mike johnson gets ousted by somebody for doing something and i have come up with the perfect perfect person to be the next Speaker of the House of Representatives. Since Jerry Springer is now dead, the person that ought to be the next Speaker of the House is Vince McMahon. Because what we have seen in the last 24 to 36 hours in Washington, D.C. is embarrassing. This is not behavior that is well suited for the people's house this is not the kind of behavior that public officials should be engaged in there has been a death or if not a death a dearth of civility and this is very problematic so the house speaker mike johnson told reporters yesterday that passing a short-term government funding bill would allow lawmakers to go home for Thanksgiving and, quote, cool off, cool off. Well, yes, thank goodness, because if ever there was a time when Congress needed to cool off, it's it's now. Let me just tell you what happened in at one day, in one day. This was one of Congress's most bizarre days in recent memory. It began when Congressman Tim Burkett, Republican of Tennessee, one of the eight House Republicans who voted to remove Speaker Kevin McCarthy, accused McCarthy of elbowing him in a narrow hallway. Here's Tim uh, Burchett, actually, Republican from uh, Tennessee talking with uh, Manu Raju on CNN. Congressman, explain to us what happened with you and Kevin McCarthy. Well, I was doing an interview um, with um, Claudia from NPR, uh, a lovely lady, and she was asking me a question. And, and at that time, I uh, got elbowed in the back, and it kind of caught me off guard because it was a clean shot to the kidneys. And I turned back, clean and there was, shot there was to Kevin. The... And, um, and I, I, for a minute, I was kind of 
what the heck just happened? And then I, um, you know, I, I chased after him. Of course, he's a, as I've stated many times, he's a he's a bully with seventeen million dollars in a security detail. Mm-hmm. You know, he's the type of guy that, when you're a kid, would throw a rock over the fence and run home and hide behind his mama's skirt. And he just now. I, I don't know Kevin McCarthy, uh, the people that I do know in Congress that have worked with him. Most of them say nice things about him. The, but the impression that I get is he is that type of guy. He is the kind of guy that would take a swing at you and then go run home and hide behind his mother and, as a child, you know, not as an adult. That is, again, we don't know if this happened, but if that happened, that Kevin McCarthy, because of a political disagreement, actually got physical with one of his colleagues, that's shameful. It is absolutely shameful. McCarthy, I want to be very clear, has denied that he intentionally elbowed Burchett, and he mocked the congressman for saying that he was still in pain, telling reporters that that simply wasn't true. Here's Kevin McCarthy. A reporter was interviewing Burchett or something. I guess our shoulders hit because Burchett runs up to me. I didn't know what he was talking about. Some reporters asked me. I did not run and hit the guy. I did not kidney punch him. I did not shoot anything like that. He didn't shot him. No. I, we're walking through. You you were at HC5, right? You guys line up along the way there. It was Bruce Wester and I walking out. He must have been interviewing someone. I didn't know it was him or something. I guess our elbows hit as I walked by. I didn't punch him. Did he but, run but, after but, you? But, no. But, yeah, well, he... I guess it happened because when I was walking back further, I don't think somebody was interviewing me or talking to me, and he comes running up like, why, why, why did you hit me or something like that? I said, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't even know something transpired. But reporters and witnesses said it looked like you, yeah. there's plenty of room for you to walk and that you intentionally hit him. There is, okay, not a place. Show me a reporter who saw that. Ask, call what Bruce Westerman. Okay, well, ask that Bruce Westerman. No, I did not go up. If I hit, if I would hit somebody, they would know I hit him. He said he knew you. He said he said he said he was in pain that you hit him so hard. Come on now. That's what he said. Okay. Um, That's far from. Congressman Congressman Kinzinger wrote that you pushed him twice while he was in Congress in the chamber. When have I pushed him? Kinzinger said he was in the back railing once, and you elbowed him and pushed him. He said Gates. Kinzinger. Kinzinger. No, I don't know. I don't know about Kinzinger. I don't know about Kinzinger. I could have pushed him. I could have not pushed him. Uh, look, it's a he said, he said kind of a thing. Uh, who knows who's telling the truth? But uh, as those reporters alluded to, there are numerous witnesses that back up Burkett's side of the so- uh, of the story as part of this. And I love the mocking. Like, you're such a big man. You're so macho. If I kidney punched him, he'd be on the ground. Ooh, you're so tough. Give me a break, Mr. Speaker, formally. Then, um, as part of that whole episode, Congressman Matt Gates, the chief architect of McCarthy's ouster, filed an ethics complaint against the former speaker, citing a substantial increase in breaches of decorum, unlike anything we have seen since the pre-Civil War era. You remember what happened in that pre-Civil War era. So that's the House, okay? Over in the Senate, things are even crazier. So these are not people that were interacting with one another in a hallway or something. What you're about to hear was in full public view of the whole world. They knew these two jabronis that you're about to hear knew 
precisely that their words were being broadcast. Senator Mark Wayne Mullen, Republican of Oklahoma, a former mixed martial artist, challenged Teamsters President Sean O'Brien to a fight. I think that's the only way that you can look at this. This is during a Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee hearing. If you were to honestly pick what committee hearing is going to lead to a fist fight, what would you pick? You think maybe armed services, maybe finance, maybe judiciary. Would you ever think it's going to be the Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee? Uh, The Senate help chair, Bernie Sanders, thankfully intervened. At least there's one adult in the United States Senate. Here is Mark Wayne Mullen questioning Sean O'Brien, bringing up a tweet that O'Brien had tweeted a couple of months ago, or I don't even know when the tweet's from, but that's the context for the beginning of this back and forth between Senator Mullins and Mr. O'Brien. What a clown. Fraud. Always has been, always will be. Quit the tough guy act in these Senate hearings. You know where to find me. Any place, any time, cowboy. Sir, this is a time, this is a place. You want to run your mouth? We can be two consenting adults. We can finish it here. Okay, that's fine. Perfect. You want to do it now? I'd love to do it right now. Well, stand your butt up then. You stand your butt up. Oh, hold on. Oh, stop it. Is that your solution every poll? No, no, sit down. Sit down. You know, you're a United States senator. Active. Okay. Sit down, please. All right. Can I respond? Hold it. Hold it. If we can't, no, I have the mic. I'm sorry. This is what he said. You'll have your time. Okay. Can I respond? No, you can't. (laughs) This is a hearing. And God knows the American people have enough of contempt. But Congress, let's not I don't make like it worse. Thugs and you, you have, and you have I don't like you because you just described yourself. Yeah, hold it. You have the mic. Yeah. You have time. These people are children. It, it takes Bernie Sanders, an 80-year-old man or whatever he is, to bring some sense of sanity to the United States Senate. These are children. This is no way to act. And first of all, shame on these people, Sean O'Brien and Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen, but also shame on all of us because we've all allowed our discourse to get so toxic and so coarse that civility is dead or dying. But wait, there's more. Congressman woman Marjorie Taylor Greene began the morning by calling Congressman Darrell Issa. Now, on a normal news day, this would be a big story. But because nobody was actually threatening physical violence or actually hitting anyone, it's relegated to page 20. Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene began the morning by calling fellow Republican Darrell Issa of California a, I I can't say the word on the radio, but a... um, the P word, a word for a vagina, the P word for voting to block her impeachment resolution against Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas. So there we are. You don't vote the way I want and you're a P word. But wait, there's more. 
House Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer. James Comer was uh, talking with the uh, Jared Moskowitz, Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida, a Democrat. And this is the elevated level of dialogue that American taxpayers were treated to in the House of Representatives yesterday. You and Goldman, who is Mr. Trust Fund, continue to try to... Reclaiming my time. No, I'm not going to give you your time back. We can stop the clock. You all continue to... You look like a smurf here just going around and all this stuff. Now, listen. Mr. Chairman, you have... I'm going to tell you something. Hold hold on. If we're we're not on time, we can... You disinformation. You you have gone on TV and said the president did something illegal. You're doing stuff with your brother. The American people have the same questions. Why should they believe you? Why should they believe you? Why should they believe you? you? There's there's a different rule for the president. There's a different rule for you. Why should they believe what you're saying, Mr. Chairman? Why? You go on Fox News and say loans you and deals are a way to evade taxes. We don't know that's what you're doing or not. We don't know. We have no idea. We're supposed to take your word for it. But when the president well, you've says already something, been proven a liar, Mr. Moskowitz. What's that? You've already been proven a liar. Who's these are, these are both liar. congressmen. You? Yes. Your word means well, nothing, Mr. Chairman. Go to my hometown. There's a camera crew there today, an opposition research crew there today. Mr. Chairman, this seems to have gotten under your this seems to have gotten under your skin. I'll pay for your ticket. I I think the American people have lots of questions, Mr. Chairman, and perhaps you should sit maybe for a deposition. I would. I will be happy. I will sit with Hunter Biden and Jim Biden, and we can go over our LLC. That that'll be great. I'll I'll make sure the ranking member is happy that that. that you'll sit at a a table. This is what happens when good people abandon politics. This is what happens when we cheer people on like hyenas, when they insult politicians or uh, entities that we don't like. The whole world has become professional wrestling. Now, I'm a professional wrestling fan, but there's a place for pro wrestling and there's a place for statesmanship. This is embarrassing. This all happened within a day, within a day. And you know what happened the day before that? Senator Chris Coons was on an Amtrak in the quiet car. He's a senator from Connecticut. He was uh, basically berated by Aaron Maté, a left-wing journalist who's been a guest on the show, someone who's reporting I actually like. Why couldn't Chris Coons take the train in peace? Why did he have to be heckled because he's refusing to back a ceasefire? I saw people at an event yesterday that I disagree with on some some fundamental things. You You know what I did? I didn't do anything. Why, why, what is to be gained by confronting a senator on a train and yelling at him? What is to be gained by challenging a congressional witness testifying before a committee to a fist fight? What is to be gained by elbowing your colleague or by giving them a kidney punch because they didn't vote for you? What is to be gained by calling someone in your own party, but it doesn't matter to me, the party, a P word? What is to be gained by calling someone in the other party a smurf and a liar? This is embarrassing. This is shameful. This, to me, is a textbook example of why we need to get back on course with respect to civility in this country. And I, I was disgusted by this yesterday. You know, I don't I think we're getting rapidly close to what happened in 1856. And I hope that's not the case, but I fear that we are. What happened in 1856? 
May 22nd, 1856, in the United States Senate chamber, Congressman Preston Brooks, Congressman, a pro-slavery Democrat from South Carolina, used a cane to attack Senator Charles Sumner, and he caned him on the floor of the U.S. Senate. Sumner was an abolitionist Republican from Massachusetts. The attack was in retaliation for an invective-laden speech given by Sumner two days earlier in which he fiercely criticized and insulted slaveholders, including pro-slavery South Carolina Senator Andrew uh, Butler. There is no excuse for this, in my view. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. This is crazy. And people need to get a grip. Robert is in Pearl River. Hello, Robert. Yeah, how you doing, Frank? Um, you know, McCarthy has a bad temper. I happened to watch him in exchange with Matt Gates just prior to him becoming speaker. Uh, he, he, they, it was a heated argument in there. I remember seeing Hakeem Jeffries, but I remember Matt Gates, and he said something to him. He said something. He turns around and he's like, "Okay, oh yeah," and then he's going to like charge him. And then uh, everybody said, "All right, cool it, cool it, cool it." Do you remember that? I seen yeah. it on YouTube. Yeah. No. What happened was uh, it was Congressman Mike Rogers, a Republican from Alabama, who supposedly right. had to be physically restrained after lunging at Gates on the House floor. You know, I remember the good old days when the worst thing that congressmen were doing were doing was shouting "You lie" during the State of the Union. Though at the time, everybody made a big deal about that, and clearly, those were that was tiddlywinks compared to what we're seeing now yeah i mean uh they, i mean they're politicians they do have bad tempers joe biden has a bad one remember him when he was uh going against uh mitt romney's uh vice president to be remember that yeah he didn't uh, get, he didn't threaten him to with a fist fight or anything like that not a fist fight but uh he was kind of laughing yeah, but uh, but but so what yeah. so what i mean laughing is one thing asking someone to stand up and fight you on the floor of the u.s senate that's a very different thing yeah yeah they they do get heated i mean i've i've watched but a few of them it's not it's never been like this it it's not since 1856 you want to talk about the most heated debate between anthony weiner and peter king they would maybe interrupt one another. It would get heated. They would talk. Nobody was threatening one another with um, physical violence. Wiener was never calling King or vice versa the P word. King was never calling Wiener a smurf. It's ridiculous. These are adults elected to represent constituents. I mean, it's embarrassing. Embarrassing. This is what you expect in the parliament in Iraq. I mean, this is ridiculous. 800-848-9222. 800-848-9222. Wayne is in Hempstead. Hi, Wayne. Good evening. Good morrow, however. And a quick compliment for you because your your interview with uh, Tony Lyons was really, the, that's like the essence of what is the best of your work, especially the part where you gave the um you know, you gave the two scenarios, sort of like devil's advocate, 
what if I'm a Democrat that this and what if I'm or and the and then you did the what if Thanks. I'm Thanks. Appreciate that. Thank I you. I like that a lot. And and that's what makes you shine. Please stick with that. But anyway, look, I'm calling about where I couldn't ask the question to him, but uh, I guess you can you can forward it to him. The question is, what is RFK's? This is one thing. What if RFK's, um, uh, you know, uh, what is his approach regarding the election processes? Now, I have an AP article in front of me from the 22nd of uh, last year from from 2022 showing everything about France. It's completely hand ballots in the national election. Totally hand ballots, no machines whatsoever. You can read it for yourself. It's the AP. Yeah, no, I'm very familiar with French elections, actually. You're not going to be able to answer his. But here's what I wanted to say about this little tiff, because it's very important. You're worried about the civility. Excuse me. That kid is dead. Fifteen other children beat the crap out of him, and he's dead. His parents have nothing. What, what can they say? Are you worried about civility when you got people rolling around in the mud in their bathroom with a pig outfit? You know, forget about civility. That that you know, that it's common. You know, Aaron Burr and Hamilton. You know, Hamilton's dead because of Aaron Burr. They had a tiff. Right. Okay. That's where we but, are. We have devolved. Yeah, but that's to, not how. No, it's not and, who we are. Well, it, it is who we are. It is. It's who Congress has what become. About these this is one day coming into the store. 20, uh, they took 17, 17, what, $170,000 worth of stuff out of the store yesterday. That's, that's where we're at right now. Yeah, Frank, and, and that's very disturbing, uh, very disturbing. And unfortunately, this is uh, not what we should expect from Congress. We shouldn't expect Congress to act like um, liquored up thugs. Now, again, I get heated. We all have our moments when we get heated. And, you know, I've done it on air a couple of times, not proud of it. You just you let your emotions get uh, away with you, get, you know, carried away. But I think you need to be an adult. And the fact that we had four or five of these incidents within 36 hours shows you the decline in the level of our public discourse. And I think that's embarrassing. 800-848-9222. Brandon is in New Jersey. Hi, Brandon. Hey, good morning, Frank. Um, isn't isn't there enough fighting in the world without the, the Senate and all these politicians, you know, fighting? I mean, it is embarrassing. And, you know, I, you know, I work for UPS. I'm embarrassed to have uh, Sean O'Brien as the president of the Teamsters Union. I mean, it's, it's just disgusting. Yeah, I, I would agree with you, Brandon. I think uh, it, it, you're, you're exactly right. There's enough violence and enough people screaming at one another that we don't need to see it in congressional hearings. You know, again, it would have been a perfect opportunity for Sean O'Brien when he was questioned about that tweet to say exactly what I just said. Look, you know, I sent the tweet in the heat of the moment. Uh, and while I have severe disagreements with you on serious issues, I, um, you know, I have no interest in being violent with you or anyone else. 800-848-9222. Hey, in a minute, we're going to talk with uh, a gentleman who has uh, written John Curtin, who's who's directed a fascinating new documentary about Alan Dershowitz, which I just watched uh, last night. I just finished it last night. It's quite good. Roller is in New Jersey. Hi, Roller. Frank, you're crying a river. All those politicians need to be arrested and thrown into the gulag or, or even hung in the middle of the street. And you're, you're telling me you're appalled hung. and you're, you're ashamed? You, you think they should be hung? Yeah, I think they should be. They've well, been stealing uh, then, from the American people. Okay, well, you're an idiot then, okay? Um, you don't like the job that a politician is doing. Don't vote for them. 
you don't like the job that a politician is doing, uh, vote for the other guy, contribute to the other guy, run yourself. But for you to uh, kind of add to the buffoonery that we're seeing in Congress these days by saying that um, these people should be hanged and murdered, I mean, uh, it's a level of idiocy that is making society worse as far as I'm concerned. Shame on you. Shame on you. All right. Uh, we're going to talk about Alan Dershowitz, a man that would never call for a political opponent to be hanged, with uh, John Curtin straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, a couple hours ago, really right before I left for work last night, I just finished watching a phenomenal new documentary. I started telling you about this yesterday. The film is called The Trials of Alan Dershowitz. If you didn't hear my primer on this yesterday, here's the trailer to this incredibly comprehensive, informative, and quite frankly, entertaining new documentary. I think of myself as an attorney for the damned. Pound for pound, the best lawyer I know. One of the top defense attorneys in the country. A ferocious litigator and advocate. The most famous lawyer of his generation. He delights in picking the one that everyone hates. He would have represented him. Some people call him a showboat, but when the chips are down, a lot of people call him. Professor Dershowitz, how good of you to come. I thrive on taking cases where people say these are the worst people in the world. It's impossible to win. Not guilty. I wanted to be the best defense lawyer in the world. By 28, I was the youngest full professor in the history of Harvard Law School. There was a set of initials on his door. It stood for don't. With their shoes. Alan Dershowitz realized his extraordinary talent would be invaluable for some very rich defendants. I was just fighting for my life. And there are a lot of very, very rich people who do some horrible things. O.J. Simpson's ex-wife, Nicole, savagely killed in a knife attack. My job as a lawyer is not to see that justice is done. We, the jury, find the defendant not guilty of the crime of murder. You've got blood on your hands, Alan Dershowitz. Mike Tyson charged today with rape. My role is to defend the most unpopular and even the most guilty of defendants. Alan Dershowitz, these guys, all of them, they say there's no crime. He didn't need Donald Trump to be famous. And unfortunately, Donald Trump has made him infamous. The lawyer? For Donald Trump? Alan, this is not who you used to be. People write me all the time saying, I used to admire you, now I despise you. And I always have the same response. You were wrong to admire me. You didn't know who I was. As you can hear, 
in that documentary, this film is not just a look at one man. It's also a look at American history for the better part of the last 75 to 80 years. It's also an incredible perspective on current events, on being consistent, on Donald Trump, even to some extent on the Middle East and anti-Semitism, all issues that are more relevant than ever. And I really can't recommend the film enough. It's called The Trials of Alan Dershowitz. going to tell you how you could see it in a minute. But I'm thrilled to welcome the director of this film, a veteran documentary filmmaker and veteran he is, uh, at least 23 documentaries to his credit, probably more by the time this show <laughs> is off the air tonight. Uh, I'm very pleased to welcome John Curtin. John, congratulations on the new film. Thanks for coming on with me. Well, thanks so much for having me, Frank. So, uh, John, why did you pick Alan Dershowitz? Clearly, you've done a lot of biographical documentaries before, and you've done a lot of documentaries involving other subjects before. Of all the things that you could choose to spend your substantial talent and rather limited time on, why Dershowitz? Well, I seem to be attracted to people that uh, other people dislike. I've done several documentaries about controversial people. I find them a bit more interesting. I actually met Alan 10 years ago in 2013 and did a short profile about six minutes on him for another film. And I kind of got to know the man and uh, was just a old away by how articulate he is. What a great talker he is. He's, you know, America's greatest talking head. And, you know, he's read, written 50 books. He's litigated 250 cases. He's taught uh, full-time at Harvard for 50 years. I mean, it just seemed like such an incredible life. And as a Canadian, I wondered why no one in America had done it. You know, it's such a good point. And that's, again, he's like you. That's 50 books as of this morning. Who knows, by the time uh, the, 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 we get to the end of this show, he might have a 51st. We had his publisher, uh, Tony Lyons from Skyhorse, in here uh, last hour. And uh, I trust me, I know that uh, Tony is uh, is fast thinking of uh, his next book that he can get Alan to write. Now, I, I uh, know Alan Dershowitz a bit. I've interviewed him on the radio uh, many times. And I have hung out with him a bit. I like him very very much. And I loved your film. My question for you is, I, I'm trying to take myself and my fondness for Alan Dershowitz out of it, because even when I end up disagreeing with Alan Dershowitz, I'm always so bowled over by his intellect, by his abilities to mm -hmm. dissect an argument, by his ability to think critically and analyze any number of issues far beyond legal issues. But when if someone doesn't like Alan Dershowitz, and as you chronicle in the film, there are a number of people that don't. Will they still enjoy your film? Will they still get something out of it? Or do you think this is only a film for Dershowitz fans? I hope uh, people who are somewhat skeptical of what Alan or what they perceive Alan has become will watch the film and, and maybe see him in a better light. I think uh, a lot of people, especially people who are younger than, let's say, 40, have no idea what he did in his early career. And people think that he's just uh, represented celebrities, that there's much more to the man than, you know, Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein, which are the two major people that he's associated with at the moment. That's really just, 
you know, the last few years of uh, a career that spanned almost 60. So, yes, I, I really, if you hate someone, you, you, it doesn't matter what you say. Uh, people will continue to uh, dislike you. And those who are incredibly afraid of Donald Trump just won't like Alan because of his defense at the first impeachment trial. But I think if you come with it an open mind, you'd be surprised how much good this guy has done. He, and he's not just been a celebrity lawyer. I, um, I've i been involved in a couple of documentaries myself, and I know how much time goes into getting the gems that come out on the screen. I'm curious, how long did you follow Alan for? Over how many months or years did this, uh, did this take place, this documentary? And all told, how much time would you say you spent with Alan during the production of this documentary? Well, as I say, I, I, I first met Alan in 2013, so I did several shoots with him back then, that mm. some of which is incorporated in the film. But the brunt of the film still took five, a staggering five years to shoot. It was, uh, you know, there were about, probably about 20 shoots or 15 with Alan, maybe another 10 uh, just uh, picking up B-roll cutaways and stuff at a later date, drone shots. And then I spent a absolutely extraordinary 2,000 hours editing the thing because uh, it's quite a complex life. There was a lot of material, and um, uh, it just took that much time. Well, it, it really it shows because uh, it's thorough, and I don't know that you can ever fully capture the totality of a man's work well, and mission in uh, only two hours. But uh, if it you came, I think as close as it is to doing that, and that's one of the things that I was interested in with this uh, with this film is I have followed a lot of Alan's cases over the years, and I've talked mm-hmm. to Alan about a lot of his cases over the years, and I find it's always a challenge challenge when you watch a documentary about a subject that you're familiar with to still get something new out of it. I think you really, without giving away too much, you really rose to that occasion. Tell me how much of that was a challenge for you. Obviously, I think every person alive in North America had an opinion about the Trump impeachment. Anybody that was alive 30 years ago had an opinion and thought they knew about the OJ case. How did you find a way to teach people new things? about subjects that they already thought they might have been well-informed about? Well, I think it's a tribute to Alan himself. He he doesn't like repeating himself. Uh, he's got a great memory, and he's got a specific angle on a lot of these cases. You know, the, his, his angle on OJ is perhaps different from other people's, and he hasn't uh, a lot of these cases, uh, at least the earlier ones, like the Von Bulow case, aren't that well known to the audience today. So I think um, it was really Alan who was the secret weapon. He's such a thoughtful person and likes to tell you something new and is constantly digging into his massive <laughs> brain storage, his gigabytes of storage and pulling out uh, the craziest stories that are almost unbelievable if you don't know the guy and who seemed to be a kind of sailing and has been mm-hmm. everywhere all the time for the last half century. You chronicle a lot of the cases and talk with Alan in the film about a lot of the cases that he's been involved in going back uh, literally uh, 50 years. 
Is mm-hmm. Alan Dershowitz the same guy now in 2023 that he was when he was defending the right of Nazis to march in Skokie? Or has anything changed? Has the type of cases that he takes changed? Has uh, his values at all changed? Is he the same guy as he was 50 or 60 years ago, in your view? I think he is. But uh, a lot of people do think he's changed. they think he'd become much more conservative and slightly right wing in in his you know older years but uh, that's just a, the appearance of things I, I don't think he was terribly left of liberal when he was young and he's not he's still a centrist basically a centrist democrat now it's just that the cases mm. that he's um been associated with now are very much so associated with what, for the lack of a better word, the right wing, and particularly with Donald Trump. I, I, uh, he's not a Trumpist. He's he never voted for Trump, but people think, um, you know, he's gone over to the dark side and sold his principles out. I don't think any of that is true. I think he is more or less the man he was 50 years ago. One of the things that's repeated, and if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, John Curtin, a, a veteran documentary filmmaker. His latest film is The Trials of Alan Dershowitz, which focuses on probably the most famous law professor, the most famous living law professor in America, I would say. One of the things that's repeated by several of the people that you chronicle in the documentary is that uh, Dershowitz would defend Hitler. I think he may even say that himself mm-hmm. at some point in mm-hmm. the film. I don't know of a, a person that's a more dogged opponent of anti-Semitism than Alan Dershowitz is. Do you think mm-hmm. that's true? Do you think that he would defend Adolf Hitler? Well, he he told it to actually another law professor who relates that in, in the film. I didn't personally ask him, but I think he, he likes to take very, very challenging cases, and uh, uh, often the cases of people he strongly dislikes or hates. I think he likes to put his own principles to the test, and he he seeks extremes. I know that every time I see him on TV, he always turns to whoever's going to interview him and really wants them to ask him t- tough questions. Mm-hmm. He doesn't like um, easy questions. He He's actually, I think strongly attracted to difficulty. So um, these difficult cases he likes to take, and I think he excels when he kind of puts himself under that kind of a stress. You, I think one of the people that kind of steals the show in the film is uh, a fellow that I worked with for years, uh, Ron Kuby. And, uh, <laughs> You're right. I, I work with Ron for, for years, and in my experience working with him, I, I and I was just talking to Ron yesterday, we're still uh, pretty good friends. In my experience working with him, uh, I could say that Ron is one of the smartest people that I've ever met. He's one of the funniest people that I've ever met. He's also one of the most annoying annoying people that I've ever met with a really remarkable talent for getting under the skin of uh, of anybody. I don't know how much time you spent with Ron, but my hunch is you got to experience all three of those aspects of Kubiism. 
Yeah, you know what? Evan Mandry, a law professor at Cooney, uh, uh, recommended him while I was in New York just to someone to go and interview after I'd uh, interviewed uh, Mandry. And I, I, I called him up, and he you know, he said he had a little time on Saturday, went over and uh, sat down in his office with him for about an hour and 15. But he is great. He's everything you describe. But what I, I, I really needed him in this film, someone to push back on 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 Trump, mm-hmm. push back on Epstein. And he did that, and I think he did it in a kind of fair way. He does it in a very passionate way. He sometimes gets a little uh, carried away, but um, he, he sort of speaks uh, from uh, the standpoint of a disappointed friend, you know, someone who... admired Alan, uh, admired him more in the past, is concerned about um, his more recent activity, particularly his defense of Donald Trump. But it comes across as a kind of um, honest and sincere criticism from a guy who, who believes very passionately what he does believe. Do you, you mentioned Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, a lot of people take issue with Alan Dershowitz for representing Jeffrey Epstein, for helping secure what they perceive to be a very sweetheart deal. A lot more people take issue with some of the allegations that came from Virginia Jufre. Uh, there's still mm-hmm. people out there that believe that uh, Dershowitz himself has been uh, guilty of some sort of sexual misconduct. Do you think that either through his reputation or from the allegations that came out from Virginia Jufre that Dershowitz has had his reputation significantly damaged by his association with Jeffrey Epstein? Oh, there's no question that that, that cast a huge shadow over him. I mean, I've known from day one that Alan had nothing to do with any of, of, of Jeffrey Epstein's uh, young women. That was clear to me from the very beginning, and I've seen the proof that he couldn't have done it. And, you know, I've talked to Alan's wife, Carolyn Cohen. There's just, you know, a whole matrix of evidence making it impossible. But, but you know, people believe what they want to believe, and it's difficult once that kind of accusation gets out in the public. Mm. People, particularly those who dislike him, just want to believe it's true. So, it has kind of smeared his reputation, which is a shame because I think he's always been a very moral man, a very careful man in his private life. And, uh, you know, he went 50 years of teaching at Harvard University without a single complaint. Uh, I just thought that was incredibly unfair. And I think journalists, uh, in particularly in the liberal media, are, have been extremely uh, unfair to him. I mean, the New Yorker profile of him made he, made him look like some kind of misogynist. Uh, can't um, you know? I can't think of anything uh, anyone less of a misogynist than Alan. He's always very respectful towards women. He had tons of women students and colleagues, and a lot of them sing his praises if you listen to mm-hmm. them. If there's anybody that maybe has damaged uh, Allen's reputation more in some circles than Jeffrey Epstein, I think it might be Donald Trump. Not only his uh, advocacy for him in the impeachment trial, but uh, some of his advocacy for him on radio and television. 
Why, in your opinion, John, was it Trump that caused Allen to become a pariah in the Martha's Vineyard liberal circles rather than his representation of O.J. Simpson, of Mike Tyson or even the Nazis? Why was Trump able to do what O.J. and the Nazis couldn't? I think the people who most hate Alan are, are, it's a product of their fear of Donald Trump. I personally, well, I don't live in America. I live in Canada, so it, it still would affect me. But I'm personally not a fan of Donald Trump, but I really don't think he's coming back. I'm not fearful of him. Uh, but some people really are. And the more they fear Alan, uh, sorry, the more they fear Trump, the more they're aghast at anyone they perceive to be aiding or abetting him. And, you know, Alan wasn't doing that. But if you don't listen carefully to what um, he's saying, you might you might think he was. And so I think it was a burning hatred that developed from people's fear of Donald Trump. One of the things that critics like Ron Kuby, for instance, will uh, will say of Dershowitz is similar to something that I hear a lot about Rudy Giuliani these days. And they essentially will say that they wonder if Dershowitz actually stands for his principles or that if uh, he's more of an old man at the end of his career embracing people because they will have him and give him relevance and give him more fame. And I've heard that of Giuliani. I've heard that of Dershowitz. I don't think that's true, but I've heard that from more than one Dershowitz critic. I'm curious what you think of that. Is, does Dershowitz actually believe in the principles that he states, or is this a way of uh, hanging on to relevance? Yeah, that's a very good question. I, 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 you know, I've thought about it a lot myself. I mean, it, it, we're all drawn to fame, I'm sure, and Dershowitz likes attention. So there, unquestionably, the idea of representing a pro, uh, president, even one that the, he so disagreed with, would would appeal to him, um, but I think uh, for the main part he did it out of principle. He had to do it against uh, the wishes of his um, wife, of his family. He's paid a huge price for it. Uh, you know, losing friends, even some people in his family have given him a lot of grief over that. So he really must believe very strongly in in in, in doing it for him to have done it. You also did a film uh, called Why the Jews. In this film, there are several instances throughout Dershowitz's life and his uh, professional career where he clearly is either a victim of anti-Semitism or an outspoken advocate against anti-Semitism. Given what's happening in the world right now with respect to the rise in anti-Semitism, do you think it's even more important, if that's possible, that people see this film than had the events of a month ago not taking place? I do think that. I, I, I think uh, Dershowitz has a lot to say about this topic. I mean, he's written six, seven books on Israel and has always been very brave in standing up for Israel. He don't make many friends by standing up for Israel, but he, he has done it out of principle and has done it consistently for for 60 years. Um, we I have 
talked to Alan since the showing, and he he would like to update it slightly because obviously I didn't know about this. This film, for the most part, was finished well before October seventh. He certainly does, and we've talked to him about it, and I'm sure we're going to talk to him again about it soon. And uh, you're right, there's not a lot of other people calling for uh, Canada not to exist or other countries not to even exist. The film is The Trials of Alan Dershowitz. My guest has been John Curtin. It is showing in a very limited run in New York, but hopefully people will be able to watch it on a streaming service within the next couple of weeks. We'll tell you when and how you can can watch the film very soon. If you want to comment on any portion of my conversation with John Curtin, feel free to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Side at Midnight with Frank Morano. The 59th Street Bridge song, a great song. And, you know, I thought it was inappropriate when they forced them to change the title of this song to the Ed Koch Bridge song. It just doesn't have the same ring to it. This is a another birthday bump of music selection by Ellen Metzger, who is celebrating her birthday today. Hope all of her wishes come true. All right. Uh, we don't have a lot of time here, but let me at least squeeze in Larry in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, hi, Frank. I saw the film. There's a Dershowitz film. And, you know, what I want to say is that, um, you know, what, what catapulted uh, Alan Dershowitz to fame, uh, usually it's the case. There's one singular thing. And in his case, it was, and he articulates this in the film, uh, his, his passionate view that he does not make, he, his, his role in the justice system is not to bring about justice. He says that very clearly and openly. I do not make justice my role is not to bring about justice and uh he, he looks at the totality of the situation and that's why he was able to represent right. all these unpopular people larry, well but, said however larry. You, yeah, uh, yeah. I, i'm however, sorry larry we're out of time um i appreciate it but uh out of time all right until next hour your influence counts use it